0: Well, as we have noted, today is a day in which we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry. But as Jeff mentioned earlier, there's a tension in that celebration. Because Jesus came, he entered triumphantly in order to accomplish the mission that God had set before him. And what was that mission? Well, first it was to lay down his life. So our, our story takes a turn pretty quickly. And this, uh, this morning, we're going to be focusing on Jesus in the garden, and, and here we get a glimpse of what that sacrifice, what accomplishing that mission cost to Jesus, the agony that he experienced, the agony that he endured to do God's will. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to go ahead and jump right in. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, we thank you again this morning for drawing us together, for drawing us into your presence. And we ask, God, that you would strengthen and equip us, that you would enable us to hear from you. Father, we pray that you would go before your word and that you would make it effective, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It helps if you open your Bible. A good place to start. Okay, we're good. So I want to I want to start by asking you a really uh, uplifting question. What do you dread? We all have something. Is it traffic? Uh, paying taxes? Long sermons? Uh, a few weeks ago, there is a satirical website called the The Hard Times that published an article from the perspective of a four-year-old who was dreading the latest release of a Pixar movie. Why? Because at the end of the movie, inevitably, his parents would be left in a puddle of tears. It, it happens every time. I don't know if uh, like, I don't know anyone that can make it through the first like thirty seconds of Up without just collapsing. You might be part robot if if that's you, just kidding. An unfortunate reality of life in a fallen world is that at some point or another we all experience a sense of dread, right? We we dread light, trivial things like what I just mentioned. But we also dread real things, substantial things, hard things. We dread impending medical diagnoses or upcoming treatments. We dread relational conflict or relational disillusions. We dread isolation. We dread death. All of those things are real, and all of those things just sort of come part and parcel with being a human existing, again, in a fallen world. But given that that is a common experience for most people, I at least find great comfort in the fact that those feelings aren't foreign to our God. According to the Bible, Jesus himself experienced dread. He was sorrowful to the point of death, distressed and troubled. That is the portrait of Jesus that we have here in the Garden of Gethsemane. And again, that is our focus for this morning. So in from this scene, from this text, we're gonna look at three things together. First, the reality of the garden. Second, the intensity of the garden. And finally, what the garden reveals. So first, the reality of the garden. And we're going to set this up by looking at verse 32 together. So let's read. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. All right, so first we encountered Jesus withdrawing with his disciples to a place. So it could also be translated a field or a garden called Gethsemane. And the name Gethsemane means oil press, and this indicates that where Jesus was was a garden area amidst the olive groves on the Mount of Olives, a place likely where olive oil was prepared. The traditional location of Gethsemane is now marked by the modern Church of All Nations, which was built over a 4th century Byzantine church. And according to some scholars, the garden was probably owned by a wealthy benefactor of Jesus or a wealthy acquaintance, someone who wanted to give Jesus a place to withdraw from the crowds. And why was he there? He was there to pray. And this is one of three recorded events in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus withdraws specifically for the purpose of praying. We see this in Mark one thirty-five. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. The next prayer from Jesus comes in Mark 6, 46, where we read, And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And he remained by himself there until evening came. And the final recording is in today's text in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. In all three of these accounts, Jesus's destination, the setting is, is very similar, right? There's darkness and there's solitude. And the positioning of these passages in the beginning and then the middle and finally the end of Mark's gospel, it, it, it indicates that Mark is trying to communicate that fundamental to Jesus's life was desperate prayer. Jesus' life was a life of prayer. He needed it. He needed that close communion with his Father in order to do the things that God was calling him to do. And if that's the case for the actual Son of God, how much more so is it the case for us? The question then is, why was it, in this particular instance, why was it that Jesus was praying? Well, let's continue reading. Verses 33 through 35. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. All right, now, these verses are startling. Why? Because Jesus is shaken. Now, the reason that I titled this section, right, the reality of the garden is because of the way in which the story is told. The anguish that Jesus was feeling. That anguish in Mark's description of it, I think it confirms the fact that what we're reading about here was an actual historical event, that what we read in the Gospels as a whole are faithful recordings of what actually took place. Why? Well, because this account and so many of the other accounts that we see throughout Mark's Gospel are totally counterproductive. The description of Jesus, right, this description of Jesus, what we read here in these verses, to Mark's original audience, it would have been scandalous. They would have read this and likely wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Both Jewish and Greco-Roman cultures had famous stories of martyrs, right? people who, who lived victorious lives and, and faced the end, and there were definite opinions about how one was supposed to face their end. Greeks and Romans were expected to be cool, calm, collected all the way to the very end. The stories that we have from those cultures of leaders facing their death without exception. These leaders were serene and dispassionate in their final hours. Think of the story of Socrates. He was condemned to to drink hemlock as a means of execution. And he's cracking one-liners all the way until the very end. Death, uh, whatever, I'm freed from the body. That was the ideal picture of how one was supposed to face death in, in Greek and Roman culture. In Jewish literature, on the other hand, um, such as, as we see in 1st and 2nd Maccabees, right, they give a very different account of, of how a martyr was supposed to face his death. They weren't, they weren't cool, calm, and collected like the Greeks. No, they were fiery. They were hot-blooded. They were passionate. They were defiant all the way until the end what we read in First and Second Maccabees in particular, you have people praising God as they are literally being cut to pieces. Those were the acceptable pictures of how someone was supposed to die. And what is the picture that we have of Jesus? He is greatly distressed and troubled, sorrowful even to the point of death. If this story was fabricated, If this didn't actually happen, this would not have been Mark's portrait of Jesus. And this could be said about so many different narratives in the Gospel of Mark. Why paint a picture of disciples who in this scene can't stay awake? Why paint a picture of these guys who would go on to become leaders of the early church, leaders of your movement, who half the time look like buffoons, Peter in particular, the person who's supposed, who stands behind Mark's gospel, right? Peter is the eyewitness account for most of the things that Mark is describing. Peter looks the worst in the gospel of Mark. Right? Why tell the story about Peter, for example, in which he goes on to deny the leader of your religion three times, twice to a servant girl? Right? You're not going to do that if you're making up a story. There's even an account just after this passage where Jesus is arrested. The situation is tense, violence has taken place, and we read these very interesting verses. Verse fifty one of Mark chapter fourteen, and a young man followed him and with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, and he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. That's in the Bible. Now, many scholars believe that the young man being described here is Mark himself. The one writing the story includes a story about him getting scared and running away naked. That's funny. Thank you. (laughs) But why bring this up? Why tell that story? Why include that in your narrative? Because it happens. There's nothing productive about it, except the, the, the ones who are recording the gospel narratives had the conviction that we need to tell the story as truthfully as possible. And it's worth noting, too, that these stories are written at a place, or written at a time, long before there was such a thing as historical fiction. Historical fiction wasn't a thing until the 19th century. So you basically had biography, you know, trying to do a faithful recording of what actually took place, or you had legends. This does not look like legends. The author of the story is not going to write a legend about him running away naked. The gospel writers, led along by the Holy Spirit, had the conviction that we need to say what actually took place, and we're going to trust that the Spirit who inspired these words is going to do work in the people's hearts that are going to hear it. So I find tremendous comfort in knowing that there are nitty-gritty, dirty details here in the gospel. Because if you're making something up, it's going to look a lot more like Instagram. People are going to look good. Things are going to be polished. Real life looks more like this. Embarrassing things happen. Unexpected things happen. So, there's the reality of the garden. Something that actually took place is being recorded here. But what was it that made it so intense? Why was Jesus so shaken? Why was he distressed and troubled, sorrowful even to death? Why is it that he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him? Now, this is a very different portrait of the Jesus that we've grown accustomed to throughout Mark's gospel. Jesus, to this point, has been portrayed as in complete control, having total power. He cast out demons, he fed multitudes, he calmed storms, he raised people from the dead. He also knew that he was going to die. He talked about his impending death quite a bit. So for example in Mark 8:31 and 32 we read and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the scribes and be killed and three days uh, and after 3 days rise again. And he said this plainly. Like guys this is going to happen. Be prepared. And just a little bit later, after the transfiguration, we read him declare, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. And then in Mark chapter 10, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus was fearless for his entire earthly life. But now we get to that final hour, the hour which he had predicted. It's here. It is coming. And he's in agony. In Luke's gospel, we're told that his sweat fell like drops of blood. As we've established, this is not how one in the first century was expected, was supposed to face death. Being calm, cool, collected, fine, great, that makes sense. Being fiery and defiant, yeah, that's good too. Being sorrowful to the point of death, huh? What's going on? There were martyrs before him that seemed more heroic. There were martyrs after him that seemed more heroic as well. Take, for example, the second century bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp. In his old age, the man was in his 80s when he was brought before the magistrate and he was given one final chance to recant his faith so that he could save his life. And do you know what his response was? It says, The fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. You do not know the fire of the coming judgment. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. I like that guy. Another powerful example is Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. They were burned at the stake in Oxford, England in 1555. They were tied side by side. And when the fire was lit at their feet, Latimer said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Those are just two of many, 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 many stories just like it. So the question is, as one writer puts it, why is it that many of Jesus' followers have died, quote, better than Jesus? Well, we see the answer in verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. See, Jesus was facing something that no person up to that point and no person since has ever faced. And what was it? Well, it was something beyond physical torment. It was something beyond death itself. In fact, it was so much worse that torment and death looked like bug bites in comparison. Now, we've already established Jesus knew that he was going to die. He even knew that he was going to be lifted up on a cross. Right? Three times in John's gospel, Jesus references the fact that he is going to be lifted up. And most scholars note that there is a double meaning here, right? referencing his exaltation at the right hand of the Father. But first, through his, it's referencing his humiliation through a brutal death on the cross. Jesus had the information, but now he was beginning to get the experience. He was getting a taste of what that was going to be like. But it wasn't just death that he was facing. No, it was the cup. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And what is the cup? Well, throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the cup is a metaphor for the wrath of God on human evil. It is the image of God's reckoning with injustice. In Ezekiel 23, when you read, You shall drink a cup of horror and desolation. You shall drink it and drain it out, and gnaw its shards and tear your breast. We see something similar in Isaiah 51. The cup of staggering the bowl of my wrath. Jesus wasn't just facing death. Jesus was staring into the abyss. He he was facing the cup of staggering and it caused him to stagger. And one can understand why. For Jesus' entire existence up to that point, which was an eternal existence, wrap your head around that, the only thing he had known in his relationship with the Father was perfect love and unbroken communion. There's a, a theological term known as perichoresis. It's the, the word in, from which we get our English word choreography. And it's used to describe the eternal relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? They exist in this perfect chain, this perfect divine dance of love, of unbroken communion of mutual indwelling. That is the thing that Jesus, for all of eternity until this moment, had experienced. The theologian Cornelius Cornelius Plantinga writes, The persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being— And constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. So for all of eternity, this is what would have marked Jesus' relationship with the Father. And what was he looking into now? He was looking into hell itself. He was looking into the cup of God's wrath. For the first time, in his eternal existence, Jesus goes to his father and experiences exclusion instead of embrace. I was thinking about this text uh, this week from the perspective of a father. Um, so I, I've got a son. He was the one that was singing really loudly right here. It was, it was very exciting. Uh, He's still little, but he's getting bigger, and he's having more opportunities to go out into the world, and that is exciting on the one hand, but then it's also terrifying on the other, because we all know the reality that the world is a hard place, that people do hard things, people do mean things, and I want to be, I hope that I am a a source of, of support, and strength for Oliver. I want him to come to me every single time he has something hard going on in his life, and I want him to experience my love and my embrace. I cannot imagine him experiencing something hard, perhaps even the hardest thing in his life, and instead of getting my embrace, gets a cold shoulder. I mean, that would crush him. And like, I could get choked up thinking about that. But friends, that is exactly what Jesus is experiencing here. He goes to his father with his need, but again, instead of experiencing his embrace, he gets nothing. In the garden, Jesus is getting a foretaste of the agony that's to come. And you might be sitting here thinking, why? Why did Jesus have to endure that? Why would he have to take on God's wrath? Why is God God angry? To which my response is turn on the news. Five minutes of news about the atrocities taking place right now in Ukraine answers that question. And the sad reality is that this is just that that is just one chapter in a long story of human injustice and oppression. If God wasn't angry, if He wasn't full of wrath at the different things that are going on in the world, that could not be a God of love. See, the more that we love someone, the more angry we get at their mistreatment. Now, I know that sounds dangerously close to love will make you do crazy things. That is not meant to be a justification for slapping someone at an award ceremony. (laughs) God gets to issue wrath. We keep our hands to ourselves. But if a loved one came home one day and told you about injustice that they had experienced, how they had been mistreated, how they had been abused. You're not going to respond with indifference, are you? You're not going to respond with, oh, that's interesting. Or, you know, I'm a loving person. I don't really want to think about that. I'm just going to think about love. Like, that, that doesn't work. That's not how we respond when we see people that we love being hurt. And friends, that's not how God responds either. He doesn't respond to the cancer of human sin, the thing that is rotting his good creation from the inside out by shrugging his shoulders. He doesn't respond to sin that is eating away at the people that he cares about so desperately with, huh? No. That rightly receives his wrath, his displeasure. But, In the love and grace of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have been provided a way out through the sacrificial death of Jesus. Jesus drank the cup of wrath for us. He did it so that we wouldn't have to. All right, so we've seen the reality of the garden, the intensity of the garden. And I want to close now by looking at what the garden reveals. What does the garden reveal? Well, friends, it reveals the amazing extent of God's love for us. See, in the garden, Jesus came face to face with the abyss. He calls out and he hears nothing. But what's his response? Verse 41, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. What is Jesus' response to the abyss? It is faithful, loving resolve to finish the task that God had set before him. And what was that task? Rescuing us from that very abyss. But the fact that he faced it right, with eyes wide open, knowing exactly what he was getting into, he was not caught off guard on Good Friday. Or he got a full taste of what he was about to face the night before. Knowing that, I mean, it just magnifies the extent of Jesus' love for you. Think about the degree of love and care that that reality demonstrates. He knew exactly what he was about to face, but he decided that we were worth it. He knew exactly what he was about to face, but he decided that you were worth it. He knew the cost. He knew our shortcomings and our failures. He knew that he was going to rescue the people that on Palm Sunday were shouting Hosanna, who would turn around just a few days later to shout, crucify him. He knew who he was in it for, but he did it anyway. Why? Again, because he decided that you were worth it. Because he decided to love you despite There's a great sermon by uh, Jonathan Edwards entitled, Christ's Agony. And Edwards put it like this. He says, When he took the cup on the cross, knowing fully what it was, so was his love to us infinitely the more wonderful and his obedience to God infinitely the more perfect. The garden reveals the perfect, inestimable love of Jesus, a love that is beyond height or depth or length or breadth. So consider for a moment, are you tempted to question the love of Jesus? Are you feeling perhaps even right now, God doesn't love me? He doesn't care about me. Well, friends, look to the garden Jesus saw what he was about to face and he decided, you, you were worth it. We can't look at the garden and say, he doesn't care about me. And maybe you're thinking, God just isn't with me. He's abandoned me. He's not not with me in, in, in the trials that I'm facing. Friends, once again, Jesus was forsaken. Jesus went into the abyss so that you could know that he will be with you everywhere you could possibly go. He was forsaken so that you could know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you will never be forsaken. Why? Because he loves you that much. He is with you always to the end of the age you believe that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the reality of the garden. We thank you for what it shows us, that being the inestimable, the inestimable, the unfathomable love that you have for us. Father, we do not deserve your love. We have not done anything to earn it, and yet you lavish it on us. So, Father, we pray that that truth would speak into our doubts, that it would speak into our questions, that it would speak into our our sense at times of unworthiness. Father, you've determined that we're worthy Lord, help us to trust in that. We thank you for the garden. We thank you for Jesus' faithfulness. And we ask that you would help us to trust in him. Amen.